When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's headline. Only 541 days to go. With 77 weeks left until the 2020 election, believe it or not, the Democratic field is still expanding, not whittling down. Montana Governor Steve Bullock teased a 2020 presidential run today, promising he's the only Democrat who can win the support of rural America. So 21 candidates may become 22. And that's not just 22 candidates fighting for the same primary voters. It's 22 candidates fighting for the same media attention, 22 candidates fighting for the same top campaign personnel, and 22 candidates fighting over the same donor dollars. To have any chance of winning the nomination, Democratic hopefuls were always going to have to distinguish themselves from the rest of the pack early and often. For frontrunners like Joe Biden and Senator Bernie Sanders, this was achieved through name recognition. For others like Senator Elizabeth Warren and Mayor Pete Buttigieg, the key to success has been staking out a unique political niche. But for Senator Kamala Harris, standing out from the crowd has proven a bit more difficult. Despite a smooth rollout and promising start to her campaign in January, a heavily watched CNN town hall and impressive opening day fundraising numbers the latest CNN poll shows her running in sixth place, roughly the same middling position she's occupied since she announced her candidacy. She said that's partly our fault that the media and pundits focus too much on this idea of electability. The conversation, she said, too often suggests certain voters will only vote for certain candidates, regardless of whether their ideas, ideas will lift up all our families. Okay, the only problem is voters agree with us. In the latest Quinnipiac poll, only 2% say Harris can beat Trump. That's 2% of Democratic voters. And when controlled for only women, Democratic voters, and non-white Democratic voters, the answer is the same, 2%. You can say electability shouldn't matter, but that's kind of the whole ballgame. So what else could explain the lack of momentum in the Harris campaign? She's super engaging. By all accounts, she connects with people on the trail. She's got an impressive resume and a very compelling backstory. In congressional hearings, she's made quick work of her opponents, and it's almost too tempting to imagine her taking on Trump in a general election. But she's been criticized for being too cautious, too vague, too wavering. She first seemed to want to occupy a more moderate lane, but while taking some heat for her prosecutorial past, wasn't long before she was extending olive branches to the progressive left, announcing her support for reparations, the Green New Deal, and legalizing pot. She's just come a tick short of calling for ICE to be abolished, saying instead, we need to probably think about starting from scratch. At one point, she called for eliminating private insurance, but then her press secretary said, no, 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 she's open to allowing people to keep their private health plans. President Trump has expressed both admiration and disgust for her. Back in January, he called her the toughest candidate. More recently, he called her nasty. 
She'd been primarily sticking to ideas over the past few months, but is resetting her campaign now with a new sharpened focus on Trump. Here's the deal. A campaign reset isn't a great sign. In publishing, the kiss of death for any publication is the dreaded redesign. It's a last-ditch effort to save what probably can't be. It's the beginning of the end, a desperate plea to readers that says, we know you weren't reading us before, but what if we make ourselves completely unrecognizable? Well, likewise, in electoral politics, a reboot isn't usually a sign that you think things are working. It also looks kind of equivocating and unsure. Harris is a strong candidate with South Carolina and her home state of California early in the primaries. She should get some important W's on the board. Along with Bernie Sanders, she's making up nearly half of the primary candidate's social media footprint. She, Joe Biden, Sanders and Elizabeth Warren account for more than half the field's news media mentions. That's more than Pete Buttigieg and more than Beta O'Rourke. So she needs to zero in on a strong message that sets her apart and then just stay the course. Okay, let's hear from someone who may totally disagree with me. Joining me now is CNN political commentator, a former Tallahassee mayor, Andrew Gillum. Um, so I'm sure you, you know her better than most do. Um, tell me, what set Senator Harris apart from the field in a meaningful way? Yeah, I mean, first of all, good to be with you, uh, Essie. Um, yeah. I have to tell you, I think Senator Harris is probably uh, one of the most talented politicians that we have out there on the Democratic side. Uh, yeah. She's brilliant. She's smart. She is sharp. Uh, uh, a candidate who I think uh, really does have and possess all of the talents that are necessary, in my opinion, uh, to not only make it out of the Democratic primary, uh, but to position herself to take out Trump uh, in 2020. Um, I get it that a lot of us uh, have been consumed by this question of electability. Uh, but I got to tell you, if Senator Harris can take it from me, as can others who are down in the polls. Uh, there wasn't a single poll showing me winning the Democratic primary in Florida's third largest state in all of America. Yeah. And when I made it through the primary, I don't think there was a single public poll uh, that showed me uh, losing the race mm. for governor. And all of those things didn't play out, uh, you know, quite quite the way they were expected. Right. And so I think you said in your opening, we're what, more than 500 or so days away from yeah. election. Can we give it time? Can we get these candidates yeah. on a debate stage, let them go at it uh, around their vision for the country yeah. and then let the American people decide? Um, uh all great points. I'll ask you again. What sets her apart, though? I'm sure you'd say very nice things about a lot of the Democratic candidates. Sure. Uh, you called her smart. I'm sure you'd, you'd say a lot of them are smart. What sets her apart? Because as you and I both know, that's really important, especially in a field of now maybe 22 yeah, no, without a doubt. So, first of all, she brings an extremely accomplished uh, record uh, to the table. And I understand that anybody with a record, uh, there are going to be two, three different takes on the implications of that record. Mm. Uh, but I think she has done a really strong job, at least of defending uh, where she has stood uh, in the past. Uh, I think she is an extremely affable person. And, and really importantly, in this Democratic primary, she represents, uh, just typograph-wise, a very, very important 
constituency within the Democratic primary, and that is black women. Uh, and as you've seen already in this race, uh, from some of the uh, forums that have been held, uh, black women do plan uh, to be taken very seriously and have their votes taken very seriously uh, in this primary process. Uh, what I think is going to be necessary for all the candidates is not only are you going to have to show that you got the chops to, to fight Donald Trump, but that you also have the vision to move this country forward. Mm. Uh, I would become less obsessed uh, with the idea of playing into the everyday headlines uh, 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 of, of what's in the news and really develop and deepen your strategy of how you're going to win this primary and stick to it. Uh, I, I tell you, that's yeah. what I did in my race. We figured out a way to win and then you stick to it. And I think if the, if the senator and frankly the other candidates that are competing here do that, uh, they'll be well served. There was um, a long piece in The Atlantic recently that asked whether Kamala Harris can beat Trump and also said, quote, no other matchup would be as riveting or as revealing as Harris versus Trump. And I tend to agree. Do you think that's because, for example, she's been so good at handling folks like Bill Barr in hearings? Is that why uh, the matchup would just be so good? Well, I'll tell you, she would be no shrinking violent on a debate stage. Uh, she has shown that uh, in Kavanaugh hearings. Uh, she's shown that, obviously, most recently in the bar uh, uh, hearing. Uh, I think you'll see that, uh, quite frankly, demonstrated well on the debate stage that begins uh, in earnest, actually here in the state of Florida just next month. Uh, right. People are going to get to see a side of Senator Harris uh, mm -hmm. that those of us in the political space have been observing for some time. Uh, but on the debate stage, it will be projected to a larger audience and she'll have a chance to introduce herself to people in a way that they haven't seen her before. Uh, and I think that that is going to inure to her benefit for sure. Do you um, do you think she needs to take maybe some bolder positions? Um, there was a lot of criticism in that Atlantic piece that she was tough to pin down, that she mm. didn't answer questions with specificity, that she's been holding back maybe to protect mm. her her opportunity. Um, is that something you think would would benefit her to work on? Well, I'll tell you, I, I think a lot of these candidates are battling with a lot of the narrative around electability and what's going to be required uh, to make it through the Democratic primary to beat Donald Trump. What I would suggest is be yourself. Uh, get out there and be unapologetic in your beliefs. Uh, make sure people are very clear on where you stand uh, on the issues across the range of issues. Trust your gut in this process, because the truth is, I don't believe the American people are looking for perfect. I think they're looking for real. Uh, and so mm. as Senator Harris every day wakes up with on her mind, how do I present my most true, authentic self in vision for the country? Um, um, the commitment I made to myself as a candidate is that I wanted to recognize who I was after the race was over. And I think Senator Harris, along with the other candidates, make that commitment that you don't go so far one way or another uh, outside of what it is that you believe, but rather run on what you believe. Give mm. uh, the American people the opportunity to make a choice between a candidate who, quite frankly, is either, uh, as my pastor puts it, the thermostat or the thermometer. Uh, the thermostat obviously sets the temperature and the thermometer tells it. I would encourage the candidates to be the thermostat in this race, in this primary race. Set mm. the temperature, set the conversation and let people respond to it. Andrew Gillum, thanks so much for your insight. Appreciate it. Of course. Of course. And happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. Thank you very much. So how will Kamala Harris break out from the crowded Democratic field? See what she has to say about that in an exclusive interview 
with Jake Tapper on State of the Union. That's tomorrow at 9 a.m. Eastern on CNN. Don't miss it. And up next on Unfiltered, the shadow of Hillary Clinton and other hurdles facing women in the 2020 race. It's a tale as old as time. The media covers women candidates differently than men. It's hard to argue men are rarely subjected to scrutiny over what they wear, how many kids they have, how they juggle work and family. But have we turned a corner? Complaints that the women of 2020 haven't been covered as well as the men, men like Pete Buttigieg or Beto O'Rourke, don't really hold water. According to Politico, Kamala Harris is one of four candidates and two women who have dominated the media's coverage of 2020. Elizabeth Warren was just on the cover of Time magazine for her policies. Amy Klobuchar was scrutinized for the way she was treated or, or the way she mistreated her staff. But all the candidates have been scrutinized for everything. Beto's DUI and burglary arrests, Buttigieg's stance on vaccines, Biden's touching problem, Bernie's old television show. It's not like the guys aren't getting picked apart, too. So have we arrived, ladies, or is there still a lot of work to be done? Joining me to discuss Democratic strategist Maria Cardona and former communications director for Ted Cruz, Alice Stewart. I'm kidding, of course. We have not arrived. There is still <laughs> lots of work to be done. But, um, Maria, let me let me um, start with you. Sure. How would you assess the job the media has done thus far, treating the women candidates? I do think they've come a long way. We have come a long way. But there is still some bias there because there's implicit bias, frankly, in all of us. The reason for that, I think, is because there is no model for a woman running for and winning the presidency. Right. It doesn't exist yet. Right. And so we're, this is all still a work in progress. Mm. And I can see how a lot of women would feel that the coverage of Pete, that the coverage of Beto has been unfairly, um, you know, positive, if you will, right? So, Glossy. And, and yes, yeah. and I think we've talked about this, right? Yeah. If if a woman had come out to announce that she was doing this Eat, Pray, Love tour, right. the way Beto O'Rourke <laughs> did while his wife, while their husband was staying yeah. home, yeah. taking care of the kids, how would that be taken, right? Well, I mean, in, but, but in, def in defense, mm -hmm. we did not take that very seriously when Beto announced it either. <laughs> I mean, we all kind of laughed at that, too. That's, that's not sure. going so but, well for But him. still, yeah. the, the reality yeah, is, yeah. the way this has always been, the media covers who the people covet. Yeah. And when the people yeah. are coveting um, people like Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Pete Buttigieg, they're at the top of the polls. That's who's going to get the coverage. That's right. just really the, the way it boils down. But I do agree 100% with Mayor Gillum. When they start debating and these women are head-to-head head mm -hmm. against the men, they will be able to show that they are strong and yeah, tough on yeah. the issues, and that's when we'll really be able to bridge the gap. But in my experience, this is we've come a long way, but we still have a ways to go. Yeah, I, I was sure. communications director for Michelle Bachman in 2012. She would have a debate. She would do phenomenal. Yeah. She is extremely smart. But after the debate, reporters would call me and ask me, what suit was she wearing? Who did that? Uh -huh. <laughs> and I would often say, right. when you call all of the men candidates and ask them the same yeah. question, then call me back and maybe I'll answer your right. question. So Can there is still some of that, but yeah. I think we've come a long Can way. Can I make one other yeah. quick point? To your point about people covet and then the, the media covers. But what comes first, right? People covet what they see. So if they, if they don't see these women candidates as often or as glittery as they see the men, then yeah. perhaps they don't know that well, that's I just, something I've that they always, can covet. I said this back in 2016 when male candidates mm -hmm. were complaining they weren't getting the attention that Trump was. Look, it's not our job to boost your profile, right? Go out and do something yeah. to get our attention yeah. and we'll cover that is you. Very true. And I still think that's true yeah. in, in this case. Alice, you brought up 
Mayor Gillum, who I adore. Um, but he said something really interesting just in this interview yeah. when we were talking about Kamala, and I'm sure he didn't mean it, but he said, you know, she's not going to be any shrinking violet on the debate <laughs> stage. We just never describe a man that way. We never. And again, like, I don't think there was any, he didn't mean anything by it. Right. But there is this implicit sort of, um, you know, a, a human bias. That's exactly right. And I think that's what we are um, combating. combating or up against because there was a recent Georgetown poll that showed that still today, 13% of Americans don't believe that women have the emotional capacity to be present. Uh -huh, right. Sure, that's a low number, but that is still, that means women still start at 13 percentage points behind men in terms of that implicit bias. Yeah. And that is really hard to fight against because it's in all of us. It's not just men. Women also in this poll oh. Felt that way. Women can be worse yes, to women. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> we, we, we have seen felt that. <laughs> I think the Democrat um, talking point that we're hearing a lot lately that they're unelectable because of women. I, I just don't buy that. 2018 is a is a living example of the fact that women are getting elected. We just need more women to run. We yeah. need them to, to take take confidence in themselves. And Hillary Clinton is a classic example. She had the name ID. She certainly had the 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 means to do so. And at this stage, four years ago, she was at 56 yeah. percent and went on to, to win. I was uh, almost I was like almost loath to bring her up because people get so defensive. Yeah. But but yes, I mean Hillary Clinton got a lot of scrutiny. She, she deserved did. a lot of scrutiny. But I'm wondering if you think some of the women run running now, almost and very unfairly, mm -hmm. have to sort of shake off a Hillary Clinton, like Hillary Clinton baggage, mm -hmm. right? Just by virtue of the mm -hmm. fact that they are women. They do. And I've actually been in conversations, even with Democrats, who have wondered whether a woman can get elected after Trump because they saw the backlash of what happened, whether it's after Barack Obama, because he was the first African-American president, mm. and then Hillary, mm. right? Mm. Even Democrats wonder out loud. I hope it is absolutely not true, and yeah. I hope that we will prove that wrong in 2020. Well, but just it one, is still an uphill battle, one, Essie. One final point I just want to make. Yeah. Um, Kamala gave an interview, I think, to um, Elle magazine, or she wrote in Elle magazine, I think, about being mm -hmm. a stepmom, and I think that's really lovely. And I think, you know, we, we can often say, gosh, men don't ever have to talk about, mm -hmm. you know, round out the corners of their life by talking about parenthood. Right. I would like to see more men uh, me too. talk yeah. about fatherhood and how fatherhood has informed their politics. I don't want to see fewer women talking about it. I want to see more men. Well, and the reality quickly. is men have a difficult time leaving their kids at home and they go to work just right. as women do. So I do. think that's a valid question yeah. on both sides. But it, I think Hillary Clinton's only baggage is running a presidential campaign as an electoral college uh, campaign as opposed to a popular vote. Mm. If anything else, the women running should say, let's run a popular vote campaign and not electoral college. I got to end it there, Maria yes. Alice. Thank you so much Thank for joining me. Happy Mother's Day. Me and uh, coming up next, Syria, Iran, North Korea, Venezuela, global hotspots are piling up, but do they matter to voters? 2020 hopeful framing himself as the national security candidate makes the case next. And a bit later, who will triumph in the battle over checks and balances? For all the political drama that continues to follow President Trump, he is also facing a full plate of foreign policy obstacles, any one of which could explode into full-blown crises. There's escalating tensions with Iran, stalled trade negotiations with China amidst tariff increases on Chinese imports, and plans for more. A clear setback in denuclearization as North Korea continues to test short-range missiles, and a continued political standoff 
in Venezuela after U.S. influence failed to produce a quick resolution. You'd think with a list this long, Democratic presidential candidates would have a lot to say about important foreign policy powder kegs. Not so much. But one isn't just talking about foreign policy. He's made national security the centerpiece of his campaign. Massachusetts Congressman and our candidate of the week, Seth Moulton, joins me now. Um, Congressman, you recently hired Obama administration State Department official Murray Harf to work on your campaign. I am sure her policy, foreign policy background is not just coincidental. No, it's not. Uh, the fact of the matter is that Trump is failing on these issues. And uh, you did a good, you get provided a good summary. I mean, look, his best friend in North Korea is firing off missiles. Uh, Iran is talking about restarting its nuclear program and threatening our allies in the region. Mm -hmm. uh, Venezuela is in chaos after the administration's failed coup. And farmers and families are hurting here at home in America because of this tariff war with yeah. China. We have got to take them on on these issues. Frankly, they're where Trump is weak. And that's why we've got to take him on, not just his job, not just yeah. in his job as president, but in his job as commander in chief. Yeah. And I yeah, I, I think you'd find a lot of people that agree with you. But is it also fair to say that you think there's a gap on the Democratic field, one requiring strong leadership on national security issues? You know, for too long, the Republican Party has tried to own issues of security, of strength, of patriotism, of of what makes America safe. And. Trump is not doing a good job. He's failing on every one of those measures. But we've got to provide leadership on the Democratic side of the aisle to show how we will make America strong and safe and secure in the, yeah. in the world ahead. And that's exactly what I'm doing. We have to be able to lead on these issues if we're going to win this election. Well, and I don't have to tell you this. You know this. Joe Biden, of course, brought his foreign policy chops to the Obama administration, even though they, they didn't always see eye to eye. Pete Buttigieg, Tulsi Gabbard have also served like you. Why are you the guy to be the national security uh, candidate in 2020? Well, I don't know why I'm the only one running on these issues, because the single most important thing to Democrats, when I listen to them across this country, is beating Donald Trump. And this is actually a place where he's weakest. So we've mm -hmm. got to take him on on this measure. And at the end of the day, the most important job for our federal government, the most important job of the commander in chief is to keep us safe, to make America strong and secure. And we need to have a democratic vision for how to do that. I'm talking about how we need to have a totally new generation of arms to meet the rising threat from Russia and China, where they're not attacking us uh, by running tanks into Eastern Europe. They're, they're attacking us through the Internet every single day. How we need a new generation of alliances to make NATO relevant to, to today, when cyber attacks are, are the realm, and to make a, a Pacific NATO to help control and contain China and North Korea and a new generation uh, of, of people who are going to lead on this issue. I think it's time for the, the generation that went to Iraq and Afghanistan to take over for the generation that sent us there. Um, I, look, I know, I know better than most, unfortunately, that getting people to care about foreign policy and, and what's happening, quote unquote, over there is, is a real struggle. I mean, even, even a genocide in Syria just doesn't hold people's attention. Do you worry that making it a big part of your presidential campaign might be a strategic misstep, as important as it is? 
No, no, because I think our job uh, as leaders is to show that we do have a vision and we can explain to the American people why this does matter at home. Yeah. Uh, why if the president is carrying on a tariff war with China, you're going to see higher prices at the grocery store in the coming weeks. And mm -hmm. farmers are already hurting every single day. Why it's a national security threat to the United States. Why, why California is not safe if North Korea is firing off nuclear weapons. Yeah. And why we cannot have a rising nuclear power in Iran that's a threat to our, our friends and allies in the, and even our troops in the region. So of course these issues are important. Now I'm yeah. talking about all sorts of other things as well. Uh, I'm the only candidate in this race who actually gets single-payer health care. So I've had a lot to say about what <laughs> right. that means and what should right. really be the vision for health care in our country. So I'm not solely focused on national security. But sure. we've got to take on Trump where he's weakest. And he is weak on these issues. We need a commander in chief that we can trust. We need someone that Americans will look to that will actually restore America, American moral authority both at home and abroad. And that's exactly the kind of president that I would be. Well, I'm glad you're talking about these issues because they're really important. Whether we agree on them, uh, on them or not, you're talking about them. And uh, I appreciate you coming on to talk to me about them. It's a, it's a pleasure. You know, th there's a lot at stake in this election, and it's our safety and security both at home and abroad. Thank and you. one of the things I learned when I was traveling around this country is that Trump's going to be tough to beat. We've got to take him on on yeah. these issues. Thank you so much, Congressman Seth Moulton. All right, next, I'll ask a Democrat on the Oversight Committee whether our democracy was built to withstand a president like Trump. In the red file tonight, Democrats are sounding the alarm after President Trump's assertion of executive privilege stymied their demand for evidence underlying the Mueller report. We've talked for a long time about approaching a constitutional crisis. We are now in it. This administration wants to have a constitutional crisis. This precipitates a constitutional crisis. We keep coming up against constitutional crises. I'm telling you, we have a constitutional crisis. From the sound of things, I think Democrats believe we're in the midst of a constitutional crisis. This isn't the first time executive privilege has come into conflict with congressional subpoena power. But does this rise to the level of a bona fide constitutional crisis? For a closer look at this, let's talk to Oversight Committee member California Congressman Ro Khanna and former presidential advisor to Nixon, Ford, Reagan and Clinton, CNN senior political analyst David Gergen. Congressman, do you agree with some of your colleagues? Is this a constitutional crisis? I would call it a constitutional standoff or what Michelle Goldberg in The Times today said was constitutional hardball. But I think the courts can resolve this. And I actually hope Chief Justice Roberts, who worked for Judge Friendly, one of the great jurists, will realize that the case law here is abundantly clear. Congress has a right uh, under the separation of powers to the information. Executive privilege doesn't apply when you're looking at things like uh, obstruction of justice and when national security isn't resolved. So I have faith, actually, in the courts uh, resolving this. David, this isn't the first time that these competing powers have come into conflict. Uh, very recently, um, not long ago, Republicans held Attorney General Eric Holder in contempt after President Obama asserted, uh, asserted executive privilege for fast and furious documents. Was that a constitutional crisis or is this situation somehow different? No. 
No, I don't think I don't think that was. Nor is this one. Uh, mm -hmm. I think we're at a dangerous point, and we could turn it could it turn into a crisis. But but I see. I, I think of a constitutional crisis as 1860, 1861, with seven states where right. voted to secede, and Lincoln forced them not to. You know, they disagree. Or 1876, when when the Democratic and Republican parties, you know, disagreed on on how three states had actually come out in the election. They they so they were bitterly opposed about who ought to be president and cut a deal. They put, you know, they put Rutherford B. Hayes in the White House in exchange for Hayes, the Republican, bringing troops out of the South and ending Reconstruction. I also yeah. think of Nixon refusing uh, at first to turn over the tapes when he was ordered to by the courts. Mm -hmm. Those are crises. This, these are confrontations. We're at a dangerous point for our democracy, uh, and I think a crisis could come. Not yeah. yet. Yeah, I think it's bad enough. And frankly, I, I worry, Congressman, that Democrats framing it this way, they're, they're sort of overselling it a little bit and they don't have to. It's 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 bad enough. Well, I think using the word standoff or hardball uh, is uh, perhaps mm. a, a better way of phrasing it. But yeah. I think the overall uh, theme is very clear. This administration is not complying with basic separation of powers. They're not allowing people to testify yeah. They're not handing over documents, and they should, and the courts should expeditiously force them to do yeah. that. Um, David, yeah. I, I want to ask you to go go with me for a second as I as I paint a picture. Sure. Um, there is a famous scene in Jurassic Park where uh, the game warden is telling the group that the raptors had been systematically testing the electrical fences for weaknesses. And the raptors, of course, found those weaknesses, but that's because Newman cut, cut the power. Um, it feels a little like Trump is testing the system for weaknesses and Republicans are cutting the power. Congressman Jim Jordan recently tweeted that Donald Trump Jr. shouldn't comply with a subpoena. Congressman Mark Meadows, Rand Paul, uh, Senator Rand Paul, all kind of echoing those sentiments. What do you think? Well, I, I think of Jurassic Park is an excellent metaphor, um, <laughs> but I, I think going all the way back to Teddy Roosevelt, uh, where the Constitution was silent, wherever it was silent, he thought that would give him a, a consent or assent to, uh, to to moving forward and stretching the limits. Uh, I think the problem with Trump is he's he's going way beyond anything recent. And what, he, Obama went uh, bounced up against that fence several times. Yeah. But Trump is going way beyond that, and I, I, I my metaphor right now is more of the frog in the, in the pot, uh, you know, mm -hmm. if you if you get in the, and, and we're the frog, and if you put a frog in a pot and you grad, and it's cold, he'll stay in there and you gradually run, you know, run, run the heat up, you, the heat rises, the, the frog doesn't jump out uh, because he's gotten so used to it. You put a right. frog in a hot boiling pot, jumps right out. Well, right. I feel like we're getting used to this, we're getting desensitized in some ways uh, to what's going on and it's just so endless uh, that it's hard to get people as agitated and, and feel like, yes, we're in a crisis. Uh, as Democrats would like to believe, uh, I, I think we way overuse as a general proposition two words, crisis and historic. Hmm. Uh, Congressman, neither executive privilege nor congressional subpoena power are explicitly outlined in the Constitution. I know you said you'd, you think the courts will work this out, but short of an amendment, how do we prevent these kinds of conflicts in the future? Well, the courts actually have ruled on this, and uh, Congress derives its executive uh, or oversight based on the separation of powers. It's clear case law, and the case law is very clear. Congress is restricted 
uh, of oversight when it's going after individuals, like in the McCarthy era. But when it's mm -hmm. asking for information from the executive branch, this comes to Federalist 51. This was the heart of our Constitution, that ambition would counteract ambition. And the courts have said when there is wrongdoing or possible wrongdoing, uh, the executive branch has to comply. And uh, they can't invoke executive privilege unless it's national security. And executive privilege doesn't apply if there is possible corruption. So is the case law is very clear. And that's why, you know, I really hope Justice Roberts and some serious jurists uh, will, for the credibility of the courts, for the credibility mm -hmm. of our constitutional system, rule based on the case law. Uh, Congressman Khanna and, and you know, go ahead, David. You want to? Final point. Well, I was just going to say one last thing. I do. Yeah. Yes, I, I think that one of the things, one of the issues that's coming to a head, is, is this demand for the his tax, the Trump's tax returns. Yeah. You know, the law on its face is very, very clear that the the uh, Treasury Department has to turn over those uh, those tax returns. But if the Republicans take it to court, and it goes all the way to the Supreme Court, or they get to the Supreme Court, and the court orders him to, mm. to do that, and he does not do it. Then it's a crisis. Mm. Then it's a crisis. I, w I will say I agree Good. with David. Yeah. I, I, I uh -huh. will say our founders were great. I mean, Madison anticipated that enlightened statesmen wouldn't always be at the helm. And uh, uh, our, our founders were uh, designed the system to withstand yeah. people like Donald Trump. Well, Congressman Khanna and David Gergen, thanks so much for joining me and having this conversation. Thank you. I appreciate Thank you. it. All right, next, our politics may be hitting a new low, but my next guest will prove that civility isn't dead yet. Love and courage both seem in low abundance in politics these days, but elsewhere they abound. For one political leader in Canada, that is, they are so important, they have defined his life and served as orienting principles throughout it. You might not know his name, but Jagmeet Singh rose to prominence as the first person of a visible minority group to lead a major Canadian federal party as head of the New Democratic Party. 2017. He's also a member of the Canadian Parliament since 2019. His new book, Love and Courage, is not a political memoir, but a personal one, which chronicles his younger years, filled with family heartaches, childhood bullying, and even sexual abuse he endured. Jagmeet Singh joins me now. It's a pleasure to have you here, not just because I think your book is great, uh, not just because I think sharing your story of, of abuse is so important, but also because the last time I saw you, we were 12 years old. <laughs> That's wild. Oh, they have a picture of it. That's so amazing. We wow. uh, went to cute, eh? middle school together. We were adorable. Yeah. Passionate about making sure people's lives are better and fight for, you know, more justice and fairness. But you can do it in a way that doesn't create division. There's a way to find that common link that shares and unites us together. Yeah. And I really believe in that. Well, the book is Love and Courage. Jagmeet Singh, thanks so much for, vi for visiting. Don't, um, let's not let another 27 years. Yeah, this is the first time. <laughs> I love it. Thank so you cool. so much. An honor. All right, we're back after a quick break. The richest person on Earth wants to expand his reach beyond our solar system. Uh, or beyond our planet, that is. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos on Thursday announced a plan to send people to the moon with the ultimate goal of creating giant self-sustaining colonies of humans. Through his Blue Origin space company, the billionaire unveiled a new rocket engine and proposed lunar lander, and he plans to first shuttle cargo to the moon in 2024. It's no coincidence that his big announcement was just down the road from the Capitol and the White House. NASA lacks funding for any lunar missions in the near future, despite the fact that the Trump administration wants to return. 
We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.